the old pilot's plain tales. The current Andy Anderson interviews conclude as his wartime experience on Sunderland's with number 10 squadron, Royal Australian Air Force, comes to an end. The way the U-boats used to uh, attack the convoys was that um, having gathered together in these wolf packs and uh, attacked the squadron on the first night, they would then submerge to great depths and creep out of the area completely. And they would stay at great depth, not um, found by the Navy, of course, until the convoy or what's left of it has disappeared in the distance. And then they would surface. Now, the convoy would be travelling at, say, eight knots, and the U-boat was quite capable of doing 20 knots on the surface with its diesel engines. It could only do three knots under the water on its electric engines. So when they were uh, on the surface again, they'd open up the taps and chase the convoy. They would pass the convoy, uh, say, 20 or 30 miles away from it, you know, to the side of it, and uh, try and position themselves well in front of the uh, the convoy and then wait for evening when they would be in the position to make their second attack. That might go on for three nights until they either ran out of, of uh, torpedoes or they ran out of fuel and then they would have to retreat to their bases on the west coast of France to, well, I presume they had their rest and, and re- refurbished the, the U-boat and then came out and tried again. So our job in part was to try and catch them on the way back through the Bay of Biscay. A U-boat on the surface, as I said, can do 20 knots. Underneath the water, it was useless. It could only do about three knots. So with the advent of 1943, when the whole situation began to turn, the idea was to flood the area as much as possible with aircraft that would keep these wretched things under the water where they were pretty useless. And with the advent of the Liberator, the long-range Liberator, that that, uh, closed the gap between the Americas and uh, Europe, then the whole situation gradually began to turn. Another story I'd like to tell you is um, when when, uh, the Australian government a few years back decided to send a, a few guys across to the United Kingdom to celebrate the Battle of the Atlantic, which to most people was a bit of a mystery. One of the uh, jobs we had to do was to do a march through Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool was a great centre of the Royal Navy and therefore it was quite correct for us to have this big march through Liverpool. So what was left of a few Merchant Navy guys and uh, Australians and various other people, we marched through the streets. 
while I was there, I was shown a monument uh, uh, of a fellow called Captain Johnny Walker. Nothing to do with whiskey. This monument was for a Royal Naval captain who suggested to the Royal Navy that a way of uh, defeating the U-boats was to have a small, very fast little squadron of, uh, of ships that could get out to the convoys when they reported the um, wolf packs there. And uh, even though it might take a couple of days, they could still be quite effective if the U-boats were still operating. The technique that uh, this Captain Johnny Walker used was to use his Aztec effectively. For those who may not be aware, Aztec, or sonar as it was called by the Americans, was an underwater detection system developed during the war which relied on bouncing sound waves off a target vessel. A ping was sent out by the emitting equipment and the operator then listened for the returning sound wave being bounced off the hard body of a uh, submarine or possibly a whale or possibly the seabed. It was a great system but of course it could be heard by the uh, U-boat, they would therefore know that they were liable to be detected. The word ASDIC itself is not an exact acronym and is believed to have been uh, related to the anti-submarine division. If one of his uh, very fast ships contacted a, a U-boat using ASDIC, it would immediately stop. It would not approach the U-boat. Now, the reason for this was it would lull the U-boat captain into thinking, well, he hasn't really picked me up. The sound of the, the noise of the Aztec has not increased as it would if he got closer and closer. So therefore, I'm perfectly safe at depth. But he wasn't because the technique was for the other ships, and he had another three, were to shut off their Aztec, and then the first ship would direct them to the point where the U-boat was. And of course the U-boat commander would not be aware that they were approaching him because he wasn't hearing any Aztec uh, noises echoing on, you know, off, off his uh, U-boat. When they got over the area where the first ship uh, indicated the U-boat was, they would then circle that area and drop huge numbers of, of uh, depth charges. Johnny Walker's little squadron sank 23 U-boats and they just worked themselves, I was going to say to death, but you know, I shouldn't because it's absolutely true what happened. Uh, in 1944, Johnny Walker had accumulated four DSOs. Now, people have, have done brave things and collected a D, uh, DSO, but to have presented with four of them was never, ever known before in any of the services. In 1944, Captain Johnny Walker died of exhaustion. 
So we can literally say that he he gave his life to try and defeat the U-boats. So that's a little off offside. Um, so to wind up this uh, rather lengthy uh, talk I've <laughs> I've given, you know, they they do say that old guys become very garrulous, and that's probably what has happened to me. To wind it all up, um, towards the end of the war, we could see that uh, these aeroplanes that, or flying boats that we owned, or we thought we owned, would be flown back to Australia. So there was a great competition among the skippers and crews as to who would be selected to fly these aircraft back to Australia. So at the end of the war, we made all the preparations necessary, including our um, injections and uh, which route we would take and how long it would take. And we did flying tests and and, uh, consumption tests on our new Mark V Sunderlands. All in preparation for this wonderful day when we would land in the Swan River in Perth, which was my hometown, and uh, and then fly on to other uh, capital cities, and uh, and of course, what what greater thing to happen to anyone to do that? So we were all very anxious, and all we needed was the acceptance from the Australian government that uh, that we would be able to fly these aircraft home. We must have waited for three, three months after the end of the war before the Australian government made up their mind. And then we were told by the CO that we were not going to fly our aircraft back to Australia and the reason given was that the cost of the original Mark I Sunderlands that the Australians purchased and the cost of the Mark V Sunderlands which they now were using because of the British government replacing aircraft that were either shot down or superseded by other better models of the same aircraft the difference in cost between the two was so vast that uh, the Australian government decided it wasn't worth the, the money. So much to our deep regret, these aircraft were flown up to um, to Scotland and the Royal Navy took them out and, uh, and let them loose and then they sank them with their gunfire. So it was a very sad day for the... Uh, for the uh, squadron. Uh, We were then placed on ships and eventually we returned to Australia and that was the beginning of 1946 when I finally got back to Australia. This made a a big influence on the rest of my life because I was a bit well behind the remainder, the other Australian pilots who wanted to continue flying because they were back and demobilised, uh, having operated in the um, in the islands north of Perth and north of Australia, 
they, you know, they were they were home and and demob fairly early, so they could apply for commercial pilots jobs. So that just about completes it, unless uh, I went on to commercial flying, which uh, I think I will not at the time because I've I've used up an awful lot of your time chatting away. So thank you very much for listening. At the age of 94, Andy is the sole surviving wartime pilot from the Royal Australian Air Force's 10 Squadron. He is a Knight of the Legion of Honour and a Fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. I would like to add my deep thanks for the opportunity to record his personal memories.